1: On the 24th of February, when Russia invaded our country, the world gave us three days. Some European countries who really believed in us, they said, one month, now it's almost two years, now initiative in our hands.
0: President Zelensky's just returned from another trip to the US, where he was hoping to rally support. He's insisting that the war in Ukraine hasn't reached a stalemate. But as the much anticipated spring offensive slipped into summer and now autumn, not much seems to be changing on the ground.
1: World leaders believe that it's a frozen conflict and that it's really arguable whether Ukraine can really win. Even
0: the head of the Ukrainian military says that they've only gained about 10 miles during the counter-offensive. Meanwhile, some of Ukraine's Western allies are starting to show signs of fatigue. The
1: majority does not support additional financial assistance to Ukraine. The last time we took a clean vote on Ukraine funding, there were 101 Republicans who voted yes. There were 117 Republicans who voted no. Polls done in the United Kingdom, United States, and Germany suggest that the willingness to support Ukraine against Russia's invasion is falling among its allies. Allies in Europe, and particularly in the United States, have their own domestic political um, situations to deal with. A lot of these countries are running down their own stockpiles of, of weapons, and all of these other things that are on politicians' mind.
0: Just as support for Ukraine was already becoming strained, the world is now gripped by another war in the Middle East, which is taking attention, time, money and arms away from Ukraine.
1: Russia is very happy with this war. They just want to divide the world, to take focus from Ukraine to another war.
0: So if the war stagnating, And if support from the West is in danger of drying up, is a military victory even possible for Zelensky? And is it time to think about how this war ends? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, should Zelensky start negotiating with Putin?
1: I'm Mark Galliotti. I'm an honorary professor at University College London and I'm also the author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine.
0: And Mark, you've become such a brilliant observer of what's happening in, in both Russia and Ukraine at the moment. Just tell us, as things stand, how is President Zelensky doing? And what about his return from Washington recently? I mean, how is he doing himself?
1: Politically, he is still absolutely unchallengeable within Ukraine and likewise within the West. He has still pretty much a status of of, of a modern-day idol with, with politicians continuing to, to queue up to get a photo opportunity with him. The official narrative that comes from the presidential administration in Kyiv is that he is still in indomitable mood. But on the other hand, we've had a you know, clear sense that on the one hand... He is feeling angry, feeling that the West has given him enough materiel to ensure that Ukraine doesn't lose, but not enough that it could win. But also that I think he himself is is feeling that he's not getting the same kind of of support. I mean, he, he wanted to make a public address on Capitol Hill in D.C., in the in the past has been quite a, a centrepiece of his visits. And his people wanted him also to be on Oprah, which, again, doesn't sound important, except that that's probably a much more important way of actually reaching out to ordinary American citizens and selling his side of it. So, I mean, he, you know, on, on his return, I think it's clear that he's feeling pretty beleaguered.
0: He's even sort of resorted to using phrases from, I guess, his showbiz past to sum up... Where he thinks Ukraine is now.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, he he made that point about, you know, he was aware that there was a degree of fatigue coming from the West. Um, And he said that you know people start to get a little tired. It becomes like a show to them. You know, I can't watch this rerun for the 10th time. And look, I suppose there is some truth in that. But I think it's also that you have to recognise the degree to which there is an interesting complexity actually within Ukraine itself. The opinion polls still show massive majorities, not just in support of Zelensky, but also in support of the idea that Ukraine has to keep fighting until it has won a complete victory, pushing the Russians out of every single square inch of Ukrainian soil, but also reparations and some kind of war crimes, tribunals for Putin and the like, all very maximalist gains and frankly, moderately implausible ones in some cases. At the same time, though, the losses are mounting. And although Russia has suffered a lot more dead and injured than Ukraine, proportionate to the actual population of these countries, Ukraine Mm. is suffering higher. Uh, Increasingly, they're having to force people into arms. It's becoming an increasingly sort of coercive process with, you know, the police actually knocking on doors. And the days when you would find long lines of people outside the military offices in order to want to sign up. They're pretty much gone. But the point is, I think it does show that the costs are really beginning to mount socially within Ukraine itself. And so part of Zelensky's, I think, fatigue is because he's having to not just be the cheerleader abroad, but also to keep up morale, keep up determination at home.
0: And while they're having, you know, more trouble mobilising people to go to the front, just give us a quick update on what's happening there. What's happening with the war and with, you know, the much touted offensive that we'd all sort of waited for? What's the current status?
1: We're close to the point where both sides will be sort of hunkering down for for winter, not just because of the temperature, but even more so because of the rain that, that converts so much of the terrain into almost impassable mud. Their main drive south, which was clearly the focus of their offensive, they were hoping to be able to essentially cut the Russian forces in two, break through all the way to the coast of the Azov Sea, and absolutely break the so-called land bridge, the direct connection between the Russian mainland and Crimea. Mm. Well, they haven't done that. And, you know, hopes of being able to retake one of the big cities that the Russians took, you know, Mariupol or Melitopol. They've also gone. The transport hub at Tokmak, which is a key road and rail link for the Russians to Crimea. Again, it doesn't look like that. That's going to fall Meanwhile, the Russians at the moment are launching their own counter-counter offensive at the the city of Avdivka. Well, I say city, increasingly the the rubbled ruin of Avdivka, which is up to the east. If we look at the the battle for Avdivka at the moment, that looks like something of a siege. It's about whose resources, munitions and personnel are, are being exhausted more. It's like a concert every night. We can't sleep. We go to work, ride the bus, and there is a shooting all around. What this really tells us is we're in a position now in which neither side has the kind of preponderance needed to be able to make any further advances. And so, really, it's about just simply making a few positional gains before, as I say, they hunker down for winter and regroup. And then in spring... Well, the whole process starts all over again. It's clearly a disappointment for the Ukrainians. But on the other hand, I think the Ukrainians will find themselves in a stronger position come spring because they'll have had a chance not just to regroup but also to take on more Western equipment and such like. What we don't know is how much the Russians will have managed to do to prepare for that because the Russians, they're just trying to not lose any more territory more than anything else. They're not expecting to be able to make any major gains themselves.
0: So, for now, is it basically a stalemate?
1: Well, you see, the S-word has become politically problematic because General Zaluzhny, who is the Ukrainian commander-in-chief and an uh, exceedingly well-regarded military commander, he gave a, a lengthy interview with The Economist in which he, he recognised that this war at the moment has reached a stalemate. And in part, that's a political statement that he's trying to actually induce the West to provide more assistance. Because whereas before the line was, if you give us more kit, we will be able to end this terrible war more quickly, now it's sort of shifting to, you better give us some more kit, or else this war is going to drag on forever. Zelensky actually then slapped him down and said, no, 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 it, it's not a stalemate. Zaluzhny is, is the perspective that I think we should follow. I think for political reasons, Zelensky doesn't like the word stalemate because it implies something that's sort of static and stagnant and isn't going to move. But we have to recognise that this is a stalemate.
0: And for the Ukrainians, I mean, is, is it a worry that there seems to be this tension between the president and the head of the army, which, you know, in the middle of a war, isn't an argument you want to be having?
1: It isn't. And I think in part there is the problem over the political dimension that has nothing to do with, with the war effort. There's been a certain amount of pressure on Ukraine to hold presidential elections next year, as would be the usual schedule. Now, Zelensky has made the case, and to be honest, I think he's absolutely right, that it would be almost impossible to be actually able to hold proper elections mm-hmm. when you know, part of the electorate is currently caught in occupied territory Millions of the rest of the electorate is currently in Europe and and beyond. And take Zelensky, he doesn't exactly have the time to be able to go campaigning. But nonetheless, there are certainly people in his administration who you might say have gone on to kind of campaign war footing. And from their point of view, Zaluzhny is probably the only person in the country who actually could pose a credible political threat to Zelensky. There's absolutely no evidence that Zaluzhny has those kind of ambitions. But if you are, I was going to say, a paranoid political technologist and spinner, but then again, I think all political technologists and spinners are professionally paranoid as part of their job. <laughs> it's part of the job. Zaluzhny right? is, the, is the kind of person who's got that national profile, that uh, degree of national support, who could conceivably be that. And so... There's fairly clear evidence that there are people in the Zelensky camp who are actually beginning to try and take Zelensky down a peg or two. For example, the head of the special forces was sacked by Zelensky hmm. without consulting Zelensky first. Now, Zelensky had the power to do that, but one would think that courtesy and common sense would both suggest that you consult with your commander-in-chief first.
0: Particularly in middle of a war.
1: Precisely.
0: So, Mark, On the one hand, you've got this sort of state of, controversial to say it, but stalemate on the battlefield. There's a bit of weariness with the war in Ukraine. And then there's competition, because suddenly there's another conflict that's flared up in the Middle East. And it's taking not only the attention, but also the arms from parts of the West. Is that harming Ukraine's chances?
1: At the moment, no. It so much depends on just how long and just how nasty the current conflict in Israel and Gaza gets. Obviously, the media attention has shifted dramatically because that's what the media does. I don't get the sense, actually, that government attention, whether we're talking about in, in Washington or London or in the European capitals, has, has shifted. They're still thinking of, of Ukraine. Now, inevitably, they are having to balance these two, certainly the, in the Ukrainian media there has been considerable attention to the fact that a certain amount of, of ammunition has been provided by the Americans to the Israelis. And from their point of view, every pallet of rounds that goes to Israel is a pallet of rounds that is not going to be going to Ukraine. As or if the conflict in the Middle East continues, or maybe even, God forbid, expands, there is certainly a fear in Kiev that increasingly Ukraine will become, you know, so 2022. No longer particularly sort of sexy. And and in particular, given that, look, it costs billions Mm. every month to continue to support Ukraine. There are no politicians in the West who could not do with a billion or two to be able to spend on crowd-pleasing spending measures, especially if they're approaching elections. That's ukraine's nightmare because precisely this has been putin's strategy he has been counting on the fact that the west is unlikely in his view because after all we we are all sort of flabby degenerates (laughs) unlikely to be able to maintain the will and the unity to support ukraine in the long term so his view is basically he will win something if he can just outlast the west's will and capacity to support Kyiv. And it comes that bit closer, courtesy of what's happened in Gaza.
0: And Mark, you said that for now, governments are still very focused on Ukraine, even if the media isn't always. Is there a sense, though, that even with the most supportive governments, is there a sense of fatigue?
1: Well, I mean, we certainly got a pretty dramatic and embarrassing sign of that when the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, was hoaxed by a couple of Russian telephone pranksters who go by the names of Vovan and Lexus, who managed to convince her that they were actually an African Union official. How do you estimate the conflict in uh, Europe between Ukraine and Russia? How, how long it will take to understand that is, what is the position? You had um, conversations with Bi- President Biden and others. So. And she said that, yes, there is absolute fatigue. There is a lot of fatigue, if I have to say the truth, from all the sides. We're near the moment in which everybody understands that we need a way out. The problem is to find a way out which can be acceptable for both without destroying the international law. We can even see this now stories out that the United States is beginning to try and put some pressure on Kyiv. And I don't think this is actually to negotiate, though that's what the headlines have been saying. I think it's more to try and prepare Kyiv for the point at which some kind of negotiation may be possible. Because at present, look, neither Moscow nor Kyiv are willing to negotiate. But when that happens, they want to try and ensure that Kyiv is going to be as realistic as possible and not be so inflexible over some, some of its demands.
0: Coming up, what would it take to bring the two sides to the negotiating table? And is it all over for Ukraine if Donald Trump wins the next American election? That's in just a moment.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
0: So, Mark, American support is obviously vital for Ukraine, for for their efforts in the war. There's also a sense of a deadline on this now in that a lot of people think Donald Trump may win the next election. And uh, there's a real sense that he would end the support for Ukraine the day after he did if that happened. So there is a sense that there is a clock ticking. If that happened, if that scenario played out, would the rest of Europe be able to make up for america's absence in backing ukraine
1: first of all you're absolutely right about the clock ticking and the interesting thing is the degree to which i'm talking to officials in the american administration who themselves feel that and so basically they feel that they have to have either concluded this war or at least ensured that ukraine is pretty much unquestionably winning by the time that a potential Trump presidency happened. Because this is, on the one hand, a man who's never met an autocrat he doesn't like. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, who is Donald Trump interested in supporting? He's interested in supporting Donald Trump. And he likes to be associated with what he thinks of as winners, not losers. So if Trump is elected, the point at which he walks into the White House, people can actually say the Ukrainians are winning. Then he may be more inclined to continue to support them. When it comes to could Europe pick up the shortfall, the honest answer is no. It doesn't have the military kit. It doesn't have the productive capability to be able to make up for any kind of American withdrawal of support. And perhaps more importantly than that, I think it would give so many European countries the biggest and the best alibi ever. Many European countries which are on the level of rhetoric totally and absolutely committed to supporting Ukraine. But in practice, regard this as a monstrous diversion of resources away from things they'd rather spend money on. And therefore, if America pulled out, I think what we'd see is a lot of countries actually saying, well, there's nothing we can do, so let's not try.
0: What does winning look like for Ukraine now? How much do you think the Ukrainian people would be willing to give up? You know, where do you think they might be able to negotiate.
1: This is actually one of the issues that is most discussed in various workshops and discussions I've had with government officials in the UK and elsewhere. What does victory look like? The plausible victory that a lot of people in the West are thinking about is exactly that Russia is forced to abandon most of its territories that it's occupied with the possible exception of Crimea and that there will be some reparations in return for some limited sanctions relief for Russia, and that Ukraine will be on track to certainly join NATO, possibly the European Union. It's close to, but not the same, as the Ukrainian vision of victory. And I think a lot of what's going to be happening over the winter, when the shooting becomes less central, the diplomacy, at least between the West and Ukraine, increases. And there'll be attempts to try and persuade Zelensky that that is, is plausible.
0: And Mark's just flipping this around, you know, if there is a negotiation at some point, Russia obviously has to be a part of it. What does victory look like for them now?
1: I mean, when we come down to it, what is Putin most interested in? And the answer is Putin is interested in his own survival. And although Russia isn't doing that badly, its economy is surviving sanctions much more effectively than we thought. What it comes down to is how much pain is going to be visited on the Russian system. If Putin is faced in a position of either having to negotiate or risk losing Crimea, that might be something that brings him to the negotiating table. Because Crimea is the bit that really matters. Crimea, pretty much every Russian believes is rightfully historically theirs. No Russian honestly cares about Donetsk or Lukansk or any of these other contested cities. Victory, from Putin's point of view, is something that he can tell to the Russian people is a triumph against the West. Because remember, from Putin's narrative these days, this is not a war with Ukraine. This is actually a conflict with the entire combined West. And it gives Putin a certain amount of negotiating room. Because if he can say, look, yes, we've withdrawn from the, the um, areas of the Donbas that were ours, but the point is we've given every Russian, every ethnic Russian there the chance to come back to Russia. This was never about territory. This is always about people. I think it's a line that a lot of Russians will be perfectly happy to accept if at the same time they got Crimea, and perhaps most importantly of all, sanctions beginning to be lifted. The sort of sanctions that you might say irk ordinary Russians. You know, the fact at the moment it's almost impossible for them to travel to the West because the airline routes closed and you can't get visas and such like. Being able to actually get hold of a the new iPhone. Things that you might say sound silly and trivial, but absolutely from ordinary Russians' point of view might make them more willing to accept what is really a negotiated defeat in Ukraine for Russia but one that Putin will sell because he's saying, look, the entire NATO forces were arrayed against us and we have still kept Crimea. You know, we shouldn't underestimate how much spin you can do when you control all the official media.
0: <laughs> and Mark, because it is a day for uh, hard questions, I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball. H- how do you think this ends?
1: I mean, f- the first answer is sadly, <laughs> Slowly. I think we almost certainly will be talking about what's going to happen in the next year of the war, a year from now. But in the longer term, I think Ukraine is going to win this war, but at colossal cost. I'm not sure that Crimea will return to Ukraine. And although it likely will join NATO and the European Union as a result, the reconstruction will be a slow and painful process. been
0: listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manvin Rana, and my guest, historian, journalist and author Mark Galliotti. You can find more of Mark's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producers were James Shield and Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Farrell. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.